And we've been looking at Paul's letter to Timothy, first letter to Timothy, and I want this morning to look at chapter 3. Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. One of those uh, first signs, specialist chapters, but I think by the end we will see that this application is probably um, much more general. Begins with one of those trustworthy sayings. Chapter 3, verse 1 here is a trustworthy saying. The, the benchmarks is the word that's been used recently to describe them. And milestones in Paul's letter, not by chance, did he say, um, one, chapter 115, a trustworthy saying Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yes? It's a reliable saying. It's one that he puts certain emphasis on as being of specific note. Make it careful, mark your Bible. Or if you do that sort of thing, I don't, but <laughs> make a, a particular point of registering the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's another one in chapter 4 and verse 9 in the next chapter. And this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labour and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men. A trustworthy Saviour. Lovely Major things to hang your coat and hang your hat. People say, well, I need a, a hope to hang my life on. Well, yeah, there are circumstances in which faith is like that. Yes, I do need a prop. Everybody needs a prop. No better prop than Jesus. Yes? That on this I put my hope. And uh, people that say they've got a God, well, ask them what they're going to trust in in that way. Um, I'm trusting in Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and in this I put my hope. Now, that, that being said, um, we again come to the same kind of question that I began last week with. Remember, if you, if you weren't here, I'll just summarise for a minute, because it's often a problem when you read. Paul's letters, that in chapter 1 it's been the truth being applied to me, the truth about myself, which isn't always nice, and the truth about God, which is a great relief. Right? And we need both. But then suddenly in chapter 2, without any apparent explanation, we've got to pray for kings, men have got to pray with their hands in the air, women must, must, must wear jewellery, and they must stop their mouth when we come together. Well, that's not a technical thing, I'm being provocative. But why, I asked at the beginning of last time, why this jumble of particular aspects of advice? What, what, what is the connecting thread? And we saw then, I hope clearly, that the significance of all those things are not something to be taken out of account. Ah, women mustn't break their hair. That's not, the, that's not what Paul is saying at all. It's the importance of the gospel. And the way that I live and the impression that I give must accord with the gospel. And my praying is not so that, you know, the Tory party on its knees may go on forever and ever and ever. You may want to pray like that, you may not. Not looking for anybody in particular. <laughs> um, but it's so that in praying the gospel will have a context to flourish. It's for the gospel, that's in chapter 2. 
And therefore, having established the importance of the gospel actually being a free course, well, of course we don't pray with bitterness and dissension. Of course, women, in a time which was, along with quiet, known as the red light city, of course a woman is careful in how she dresses so as not to give the wrong impression. That's the underlying principle. So we come at the end of it to the section where Paul has dealt with the, the need for women to operate within the sphere of authority, in full scope for all their gifts and contributions. Then suddenly, chapter 3, there seems to be a complete break again. I wonder if there is a connecting point. What connection is there between women continuing in faith, love, and holiness with propriety? And here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he designs a noble task. At first sight, it does seem a little bit incongruous, as if one does not flow onto the other. So let's read chapter 3 together. It's not very long. I think when you come to the end of it, you'll understand what I'm getting at. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, or an elder, or a bishop, it's the same the, the, the same words are used interchangeably. He designs a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, there were problems in those days, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere not indulging in much wine. Seems to be a little bit of scope there, but I won't talk any further on that. And not pursuing dishonest gain. I would approve of it, but that's fascinating. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women, I've got to change that because it doesn't say their wives, it says the women, the female, are to be work, women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of Godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. 
every word relevant, sharp, and effective among us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're looking carefully, you will see that verses 1 to 13 are in brackets. If he'd been writing the letter and was sure to see Timothy before too long, he says he would have left 1 to 13 out and told him when he got there. 1 to 13, according to verse 14, is there in case of delay because there are some practical things that he wants to say. So, actually, if we could put big brackets around 1 to 13, the flow of the importance of knowing the truth and of the gospel being consistent or our behaviour consistent with the gospel, we then go to verse 15, where Paul talks about something else which is crucial for the truth. And he starts to unpack his own convictions about the importance of the church. And it's in the light of verse 15 that we understand why verses 1 to 13 are so very, very, very important. I'll come to that and enlarge that in a minute. He begins to use one or two pictures to describe the church. Now, I'm conscious that some of us might be just thinking on a different, a different concept to what I mean. I don't mean the, the church institutional. I don't even mean, particularly in this context, the, the umbrella church, the church of England, the established church, this church, or that church. The context is quite clearly the gathered congregation of God's people in one place. It isn't a building, it isn't an institution, it certainly isn't a denomination. But it's actually talking about the glory of God's church, his ecclesia, his called out ones. So it's all people. It's got nothing to do with organisations, nothing to do with buildings, nothing to do with hierarchies at all, nothing to do with church councils or creeds. He's talking about the ecclesia, his, those that he has brought out of darkness into light, and they are his, the apple of his eye. And it's the church. And Paul has a very different perspective on the church, if you'll understand the sense in which he's meaning it. He writes the whole of the letter to the, uh, to the Ephesians almost to underscore the dignity and the honour and the eternal heavenly significance of these people that he has brought together and dignified as his bride one day. If you're the Lord, you're going to a banquet and the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride will be, will be brought into, into oneness for eternity with the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, in that day, not here, in that day. And we describe the people, are described as the temple of the Holy Spirit. The place where the glory of God, now what used to be in a temple, on the top of a hill, just above the, uh, the 
valleys surrounding Jerusalem. On the slope of the hill, there, David's temple, above the city of David. But not anymore. Here, in this great it would be quite interesting, wouldn't it, for us all to stand and have a look. Look at God's temple. Forget the walls. Collins should be on the green this morning. In some ways, we should, because it would have been quite conducive for us to stand around and say, Look at God's church. What a mock crew. <laughs> You've got to see through the eyes of faith, haven't you? Sometimes. So I wasn't going to, of course, I was talking in German terms, and of course, I didn't think that would be a good And he, leaving out the bits and brackets, verse 14. Speaks in this way. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in in God's household, which is the church, the called out ones, the people drawn to Him of the living God, the pillar and foundation or bulwark of the truth. And these pictures describing you. You, if you if you have been converted. If you receive Christ as your Lord and your Saviour into your heart, if He is your friend and your uh, and your God in experience, this is you. This is talking about we as a people together, the household of God, the church of God, the pillar and bulwark or foundation of the truth. Now I want to see how this works through for us and the kind of implications that arise quite naturally from it in these verses before us. The great dignity and glory and significance for me. God, help us to see us as you see us. You see, we get into this congregated, oh, I go to the Baptist church in Park Road. No, you don't. No. I belong to the people that worship in that Baptist building in Park Road. There is a world difference. One that gives me a sense of identity, of belonging. The other one gives me a sense of going and coming away again. So let's go back, having said that, by way of introduction, to the first verse. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. The bishop, the overseer, the presbyter. Titus 1, verses 5 to 7, uses these phrases interchangeably. There is nowhere in the New Testament where a bishop is described as someone over a number of churches. Nowhere at all. The word episkopos and the word presbyteros are used quite interchangeably. There is no distinction in the New Testament. One describes the person's authority, the other one describes the person's function. The emphasis on the word bishop is overseeing. It's a shepherdly um, picture. Someone who stands over this household, this family. Again, talking of us together. This family. And on two occasions, we're talking about the role of deacons and the role of elders, that Paul says that one of the conditions for being an elder or a deacon is that you actually get the principles working in your own home. Now, if you can get the principles working in your own home, well then fine, you can come and get the principles working in God's home. God's household. God's estate. I, I always kind of think of someone like, not long, but, you know, without the lines. 
the big estate with the gardeners and the servants and the, the you know the people that clean the stairs and the maids and the butler and another God's house isn't like that, it's much more of a family. And yet there, there is a sense in which that estate with its own farm, which was so self-sufficient, it's, it's a lovely picture of the church. And maybe you work on the farm, maybe you work in the rose gardens. I'm not sure, but uh, I know who's, whose house it is. And I, I know who I serve in, in, in that sense of, uh, of faithfulness. And we are a family. There are relationships. There's cooperation. There's a sense of mutual responsibility. There's another word which is not all that common and not all that favoured upon in the South East. There's a sense of dependence. Oh, I'm myself. That's the ethos in which we live. There are some communities in the north of England where the attitude within, within society is very different to that. That uh, when we were in Wales, that it was, it was expected that when the elders field, when the hay was up, that, uh, and it was hay time, well, what else would the church do when went to prayer meeting? Of course, we wouldn't have prayer meeting and got collected bales. That wasn't so bad, it was only a potato harvest. My <laughs> commitment in the local church was to go and go a little bit uh, And I'm not suggesting that we should go and give each other's garden necessarily. But I'm saying that there is to be a dependence on one another. There's nothing wrong with that. My pride might want someone, not you. You might need me. Oh, we might not. Well, I'm a cancer. You can come to me. Of course, I don't need to come to you. And it's in us, isn't it, unfortunately? And we lose that sense of family. Whereas in a family or in a, in a household, I have something that I could do well, and I do that, and you have something that you could do, and you could do well, and together we complement one another. That's, that's essential to the whole life of the church. That's why you're important. Because you can do something much better than I could ever dream of doing, hope to do, because you're distinctively you. And you have a gift within this household, on this great estate of, of Lord Jesus, you have a part to play in a role that's tremendously significant. Praise God. Amen. And so these bishops come in to oversee that, especially the shepherding side of things, and the deacons. Just let me comment. I don't really want to get drawn into the meaning of all these qualifications and and aspects of eldership, those, those that they apply to, and hopefully will take you seriously and do, you a little, do a little checklist. And don't do a checklist for somebody else, please. <laughs> do a checklist for yourself. But let me just comment on this, what is translated here, in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect. I find it just a very strange translation and a very inappropriate one. The word says, in the same way that the women are to be women worthy of respect. Now that could mean one of three things. Either it could refer to the wives of the, of the deacons, or it could refer to women in general, or it could refer to women deacons. Now, tell me, if it is women in general, it's completely out of context. Because here, the Paul is dealing before and after verse 11, with offices within the church. True? So, it, 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 must have, it would be completely 
incongruous for it to be talking about women in general. So either it's the deacon's wives, or it's women deacons. Now, if it's deacon's wife, what about elders' wives? Why is it stuck in, in the middle of the discussion of deacons? Furthermore, why is it that general instructions are given to the men deacons, and then general instructions are given to these women, and then the part that is distinctive of a male deacon, i.e. that he should rule in his own house and have only one wife, comes afterwards. It's, it's quite clear to me that, that chapter 3, verse 1, talks about the conditions, and verse 2 talks for an elder. Verse 8 talks for the, the conditions for a male deacon. In the same way, the women are to be seen to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talker, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Conditions for women holding that office. To me, I can't personally see, however, they could translate it. It's putting too much of a particular emphasis to actually say wives there. And uh, nowhere else in Scripture is that kind of emphasis given. So just by, by the way, uh, I'd like to comment on that, because there are, it is very important in the life of the church that women in leadership and in care take their rightful place. Or else otherwise, the, the wisdom and the balance of insight in pastoral care can get completely overlooked and lopsided from a male perspective. Yeah? And we looked in house, in house groups um, a couple of months ago, um, just to, by way of illustration, to see how it's got to work through. And we talked about this, and some of you thought I was kidding when I said that I felt that women should have those kind of roles, but I was in deadly earnest. And in, by time of discussion, we, we started to look at the whole role of house groups and house group leaders. And it was pointed out to me very kindly that there was a gross inconsistency in what I say and what I do. In that this, that when we talk about who should be house group leaders, we say, well, a man and his wife, because of the team side, for a man to relate pastorally to the men and the woman to re relate pastorally to the women. It's so important that it's a couple. Um, do, do you think that women can be house group leaders? Yes, I do. But I think it's better, and well, I'm sure we would all agree that it's better if it's a couple that, that help with the house group. Why then do only the men go to the pastoral team meeting? Hmm. <laughs> See? It was inconsistent. If the pastoral team meeting is there so that those in need and, and, and the, the women who are in contact with the women can say, well, look, I think we ought to tighten up here or do more there. It's quite inconsistent that the women, that there should be house group leaders when you, when, when the house groups meet together. When it comes to actually overseeing the pastoral care of the church, it should be house group leader. So we changed it. And we had the women at the house group leaders meeting last week, just to show that we do actually implement it consistently. It's got to work through, you see. And in, in, in the general care and running of the church, it, it, it's, it, it's fundamental that the the role and the important contribution of women has its full sphere. But I don't, I don't want to say more on the, this list of qualifications for men or women. I want to go back to where I started 
to this perspective on the church. High standards for high office. Now, a week last Saturday, I spoke at the men's breakfast on this scene, but as only 11 men were there, and I prepared for hours anyway, I'm going to have a go at you now. What place does ambition have in the life of a Christian? What place should it have? Is it really self-aggrandizement or a, a form of immodesty for a Christian to be ambitious? Not so. You see, there is a sense in which we lack a sense of goal and, and godly ambition. Now, there is a selfish ambition which is for a, repeatedly condemned in the scripture. But here the apostle says, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires, he reaches out for, he aspires a noble thing, a good thing. It's right that a man should want to increase the sphere of degree in his usefulness. Usefulness. It's a good thing. A sense of, I want to get there in my Christian life is crucial. And I also refer to the whole question of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire that you should prophesy spiritual gifts full, especially that you should prophesy a sense of spiritual ambition. And so many of us have kind of drawn the line and said, well, that's fine now, I've got this far, everybody thinks I'm a good Christian, that's enough. God give us some spiritual ambition. Lord, I want to heal. Lord, I want to minister in, 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 in words of prophecy. Lord, I want a word of knowledge when I go to that person on, on, on Thursday. Whatever. Lord, earnest, I want to earnestly desire spiritual gift. What a breakthrough there would be. I mean, normal, sensible, effective, functioning in the gifts of the Spirit. She so much wants to release within us. You. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely. It's not just rain, though. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's that sense of ambition. Not only in the sphere of spiritual gifts, but everybody. It's not just for the elders. So it's for the poor of the time. It's for me. See? Earnest desire, and this whole question of ambition. Earnest desire that you should be effective. No, not everybody's going to be an elder. It might be awful. But everybody has a function and a purpose within the called out ones of God, the people that are the church. Everybody, now earnest the desire to reach your potential in God. That's the lesson of this. Earnest the desire it. Because it's a privilege. And there's a mixture of desire here and compulsion. Really because of 15, because of verse 15. You see, the church is the household of God. They're the called out. What a privilege. What an honour to be an elder. In the church of God, the pillar and foundation of the church. What a privilege. 
What an honour it is being called of King Jesus for the privilege of the pastoral care of household. What a noble word. Just think that the courts of heaven called you to lead the Tuesday group or to have a year more or to help in Shepherd's Prayer. What an honour in the church of God. What a privilege. What a thing for my life to be capable of rising to. That's very different from the, the response that so often we seem to pick up from people. Oh, do I? The problem is that that person has lost sight of who the church, what the church Lost sight of his dignity. This household of God. Lord, can I really polish your stairs? What Can I really polish your boots, Lord? Can I really? See? It's his bride, the pillar, and foundation of the truth. And since it's, the reference is here specifically to elders, and two of them are away, one of them's had a, 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 a leak on his water pipe, and the other one's basking in the sun. But nevertheless, <laughs> we'll present them with a complimentary copy of this tape, Denise. For current elders, go on designing. Go on recognizing the privilege. Don't allow yourself to become weary or disinterested or allow your life to be submerged with alternatives. It's an enormous privilege. And you know, in, in terms of my own, you know, what the privilege that I have, I consider myself <coughs> a mark in this sense as John. Two-thirds of the sense. What a privilege to do what I do. Now, I'm going to boast for a minute. Yeah. I would want to do what I'm doing. And you say, I wouldn't want to do what I'm But you see, even man in full-time ministry, with all the disappointments and pressures, loses sight of this. He'll be out of the ministry in as I've said before, a friend of mine is a minister in Morecambe said that he, he passed a man digging a hole in the road one week and really felt envious. Well, there are times when in the middle of all the trial and disappointment you feel like that, but the, it's the perspective you see. It's chapter 15, it's verse 15 that gives meaning to verses 1 to 13. 1 to 13 is worth it and a privilege because of verse 15. So whatever you do, in the church. Whether you clean it, and I wish you would, <laughs> or whether you're the chief steward, you have the privilege of functioning in the household of King Jesus. The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now that, that's fine. Our part in all of this is a great privilege. He that desires the office of an elder Designs a noble work. I hope you'll always see it in those terms. 
But secondly, and I'll try and do this a little bit more quickly, that our perspective, our part is a privilege, but our perspective must be spiritual. Do notice that in verse 5, talking of the elder and his role in the family, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the Baptist church? No. David Arnold's church? No. Terry Burkle's church? No. Definitely no. God's church. God's church. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. You have a very special mark of ownership on you. You may have thought that you were just going along to church this morning. You come amongst a very privileged number. A number whose name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the world was made, who were called to the kingdom for such a time as this and meet for this purpose of worship in this place. A privileged church of God. Those that God has laid hold of. Isn't that precious? Doesn't that warm your heart? Doesn't that make you want to put your shoulders back and lift your head? Isn't that a perspective which gives dignity? We hear a lot today about our lack of self-worth or my self-image. God, give me this perspective of my self-image and my worth and my dignity. I belong to the church of the living God. Hallelujah. And you know, I'm in good company. It's at times like this when a knowledge of church history would do as a, would be a shot in the arm. And I don't mean the institutional church history. I mean that company of people in every century who have got this emphasis right, whether it's the Waldensians in France or the, the, the Montanists in, 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 in Asia Minor, the, 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 the early Methodists, the, the men who, the, the dissenters who came out under Henry VIII, Charles II, wherever, that this noble company of people with all kinds of traditions who were the church of the living God. The Anabaptists in Germany at the time of the Reformation. The Lawrence, Winkler and his preachers. <laughs> Bless God for them. What a privileged company to stand amongst. And uh, I've said before, and there's often been answered back, that a good holiday has a good graveyard in it. If there's been a a place where God has moved in the past. And sometimes to stand there and identify with those saints of God who've gone before and love the Lord and prove His faithfulness. And I have the privilege of belonging to the same line. Praise God. And I don't care what group they belong to. We are the same family. We're walking in the same way. I'm in the footsteps that the Apostle Paul walked in. Jesus treaded them first. It'll be like that man at Christmas. And the Apostle Paul walked in the footsteps too. And so did Calvin. And so did Madame Guillaume. And so did Bernard of Clairvaux. So you need a history lesson. And they walked, so did Gerald Boone. So did Edmund Roberts. And they were all walking. The noble army, many of them martyred, 
and I belong to the same church. Hallelujah. And see what it is that we are the pillar and bulwark of that bulwark, a strong earth mound of defense. What is it that we are treasuring? If we're in a casket holding something precious, what is it? Well, it's the truth about Jesus. If you were drawing out, if you got to this point, and, and Paul, and, and if I was writing this, you could imagine it. Well, yeah, just stretch your imagination for a moment. And if, uh, if I'm delayed, this is the Apostle Orton writing it, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth beyond all question, the mystery of Godliness is great. He created us. I believe one God the Father, I want to make up and the Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived, first born of Virgin Mary, suffered unto Pontius Pilate. And I could, you know, the, the whole creedal thing we have substituted for a concept of truth which is actually different from that. Now, I believe in creeds. Definitions of what's true and what's false is very, and it must always be very, very important for the church, and we have a statement of faith that we believe as a church. So we should. But the truth which we defend, that we are the pillar and foundation of, is the truth as it is in Jesus. And when Paul wants to bring a, in a nutshell, what it is we are all about, he simply talks about Jesus. And if you know anything about theology, you'll know that the people that have got that right, that all other doctrines are most sensible. If your Christology is right, your theology is right. If you change your Christology, your theology is right of the That's why Jehovah's Witnesses have such a weird development of doctrine because the Christology is wrong. And here, Paul is talking about the truth, and the truth here, here in the book, out goes the Bishop of Durham. <laughs> was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels. We've had a few of those this morning. Thank you, Lord, for sending your angels. They have those old, on, on, on the Vatican, they've got those three, they, they've got stone images standing on the roof, we've got angelic beings on the roof. Thank you. He was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, taken up to glory. Now, whether it was a verse out of an early church hymn, or whether Paul just waxed lyrical, what he's saying is that we have this treasure, that we are the beholding on the roof, we Christians, we the church, the people of God, we're holding on the roof and we're defending the foundation of the truth that is Jesus. And Jesus is the central thing that we hold to. Now there will be aspects of definition within theology, as of course there are. But the truth that I hold is a personal truth. A living truth about a saviour who became a man, who died, who rose, who ascended, who took glory in the Father's presence. And that's my Jesus. That's the truth. That's what the church is here for. That's why we gather. Because he appeared in a body was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed in the world, and taken unto That's why we're here. That's why we stood a moment or two before and lifted our hands to worship Jesus, because he was taken up to glory. 
and he lives in the heavens. A man in the presence of the Father, seated there, standing there, whatever his position of the present for you and I. Truth. Truth to be guarded. And, and truth really to be guarded by doing it and not just defining it. Very important aspect of the way that Paul uses it, that as a people we've got to live it. If people want to know what the truth is, they need to be able to come here and look at you. That's the church. That's how the church defends the truth. It's not by getting a dusty old volume off the shelf and saying, ah, actually, we believe this. It's not absolutely evident that we believe in the glory of the Son of God. That we believe that he was God and man incarnate. He was born of a virgin and, and, and died on the, and rose again on the third day. It ought to be absolutely obvious in the way that we live. No other possible reason, explanation could be given for the transformation of the hearts of people. Hallelujah. And you'll notice, therefore, that when the apostle is talking, particularly to deacons, but also to elders, that um, spiritual men, the spiritual house, Deacons are to be made of faith, verse 9. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Men who actually can handle the things of God. And again, verse 13. Great, excellent and great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus. Remember when Stephen was being appointed in Acts chapter 6, right at the beginning of the early church, find men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So they found Stephen and said he was a man full of the Holy Ghost and faith. And these are the, the people who are going to be leading, who are going to be administrating, who are going to be organising the function of the church. And that if the church is what the church is, if the church is a building or an organisation, you don't have to be spiritual, you just have to be clever. Right? Anybody can run a good business. Anybody can, with, with the necessary gifts, can administer we still need our ministers and we still need to be business-like, but the essential quality is our spirituality. It's our godliness. It's our sensitivity to the Spirit's voice. That's the way it comes out. A church will rise or fall on the basis of that. And therefore, when Paul is writing and commenting on elders, he talks about the, the two-pronged two attack of Satan. Very interesting. But so much that I hear about how the devil wanted to get at me. It's very interesting when Paul describes how the devil wants to get at elders. The two there, the two, the main prong of the attack of, of the devil. I don't know what his strategy is. He wants to get you on two counts. One is conceit and the other is slander. They're there. The first one talking about he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. That's the first reference. He wants to get me thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think. He wants to get me covered up with my own importance. The word that is used there is um, that it is lifted up, uh, one man put it, wrapped up in smoke. That's what it is, really. Wrapped up in smoke. Just, just, just lacking substance. And he'd love to get my heart full of pride, wouldn't he? He managed to that's his first attempt. We, we, we just feel that Satan's strategy is much more spiritual than that. No, it's not. He'd love to discredit you. That's the second one. And he'd love to get you conceited. He'd love to find some way to, to put your name on the front of each of you as a male 
and discredit you and the work of God for forever onwards from today. He'd love to do this. He'd love to ensnare you. See there? And he must also have a good reputation with their insiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What does what devil mean? Slanderer. Accuser. If only he can get you proud or get you condemned or accused or whatever, if he can just devour you that way, the devil's principal interest is not to give me a headache or to make me feel, even to make me feel heavy. Oppression does not come directly down that line. Oppression, according to this, particularly where elders are concerned, that I have to make them proud or to make them condemned. Doesn't that fit? Doesn't it? Doesn't it love to ruin your confidence? Or, or, or destroy your humility? 